President Biden has a disastrous time at the G7 summit. Trump comes to the SBC, and we talk about the sin of homosexuality. Yep, we're going to get controversial in this episode. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is the God of Freedom Show. The show is sponsored by Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. So if you always want to start a podcast but didn't know where to begin, Anchor is for you. Anchor is very simple to use and is also free. All you do to simply record your audio from your phone, computer, laptop, or wherever, edit it, and then post it. You can monetize it with sponsorships or donation buttons. And you can distribute to sites like a Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check it out at anchor.fm or download the app against anchor.fm or download the app. Alrighty, so we are back. I hope everyone's having such a great week. So we have a lot to get to today, so let's jump right into it. So over the past uh, week or so, the G7 summit has been taking place over in Europe. I believe, I believe it's in the United Kingdom. I forget where. Oh, it actually might be in France. I, sorry, I can't exactly remember what it is, or where it is. But what the G7 summit is, is usually just say a group of different nations coming together to discuss kind of some global issues or whatever is usually, I believe it's the United States, um, yeah, the United States, UK, France, uh, Germany, oh man, I cannot, hold on one second. Alright, so the members of the G7 summit is, uh, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the United States, um, as you recall, some years back it was called the G8. That's when Russia was part of it, but now Russia's been kicked off because Russia's kind of a garbage nation. But basically, you know, they get together, discuss kind of different issues with like, some... This time they talk about, you know, global warming, course, and other issues with other countries like China and Russia and um, I think even Iran and all that. So... It's kind of like a smaller version of the United Nations. And, of course, you know, this was uh, President, President Biden's uh, first time going. And let's just say it was not uh, super well. It was not good at all. So here's actually a few videos of his time over at the G7 Summit this week. those who have just joined us, bringing some pretty spectacular weather uh, with them, Prime Minister Modi, uh, President Ramaphosa, President Moon, in just a minute. And the President of South Africa. And, and, and the President uh, of South Africa, as, 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 I, as I said earlier. Oh, you did, I did not, I did, I, I, I certainly did. But you get elected twice, I'll go over that again. I'll, I'll, let me tell you, we're, we're, we're delighted. I'll, it's been, I'm glad to work with, we're joined by Prime Minister Modi. Let's go. Yeah. So, not too good. Then here's another one. This is actually from his speech. And, you know, how Biden's speech goes. So, here's what that looked like. Where um, we can work together with Russia. For example, uh, in, uh, in Libya, we should be opening up the, 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 the passes to be able to go through and provide... Uh, provide uh, um, food assistance and economic assi- I mean, 
vital assistance to uh, a population that's in real trouble. I think I'm going to try very much hard to uh, it, it is. And by the way, there's places where I shouldn't be starting off and negotiating in public here, but let me say it this way. Russia has engaged in activities which are, we believe, are contrary to international norms, but they have also um, uh, bitten off some real problems they're going to have trouble chewing on. And, for example, the rebuilding of, uh, of, uh, of Syria, of, uh, of Libya, of, you know, this is — they're there. And as long as they're there without the ability to bring about some order in the, in the region, and you can't do that very well without providing for the basic economic needs of people. So I'm hopeful that we can find an accommodation that where we can save the lives of people in, for example, in, uh, in Libya, uh, that uh — So here in this video, you know, he confuses Syria with Libya. Um, during his speech, and he actually made it multiple times all throughout the um, in the G7 speech. And here's actually the final video I want to show. This was just probably one of the craziest ones. So it's just, it's President Biden just wandering through a cafe as the leaders are kind of going walking through. So here's what it looked like. How are your meetings going in Cornwall, Mr. President? How are your meetings going here in Cornwall? Very well. Come on. They always do. Um, that's not good stuff right there. I'm just like, first off, where exactly is the Secret Service doing this part? Because, I mean, he just literally just kind of wander off into this cafe while everyone else is over um, to the side. Or, like, walking around it. I mean, this is... This is very weird where about that the Secret Service was not there. And it's just it's clear, just this guy, this president, the president of the United States, he's not with it. I mean, he just had himself an awful time at the G7 summit, he, his speeches were just as bad as usual, and he just looked very weak. He made, he made the United States look very weak, very weak, compared to President Trump, where he put the United States back to where it was, just like a strong force in the world, pretty much. But he, Biden came in and dumbed it back down to now where other countries can basically bully the United States to do the bidding. And Biden will not <laughs> lift a finger for it. He would, he would cave right to their commands. And it just, it's really sad because, I mean, you can tell really specifically on, specifically on this last video that he is not with it. Mentally, he's not with it. He just wanders off randomly from crowds. I mean, that is like a very key sign of like dementia and Alzheimer's and all that. And nobody is doing anything about it. Just, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy, I mean, and, and there's no possible way I can see that him that he will be running for election. I just don't see it. I mean, he possibly, possibly sadly, 
God forbid that he might not even make it through his first term. I mean, hopefully he will at least, but he's definitely not going to be running for re-election. Re so is is really I think this is really just a warm up. This presidency is really just a warm up for Kamala Harris to try to come in. But things will come up Kamala Harris that she's very very unpopular, so that likely won't work out in her favor, like she will, like she would think. But. I know it's absolutely crazy what the Democrats have been doing with with Biden because because he's not there, but they desperately need him there because if he you know just goes off the rails, he can you know step out of office and then that's where Kamala Harris comes in and they're scared to death of Kamala Harris because she's openly radical about her policies, so that's why they need desperately need Joe Biden. In, in the presidency right now, until they come become bold enough to uh, push their actual radical policies. I mean, they're pushing it right now in the legislation and trying to push it on Biden. But if Kamala Harris comes in, they'll be able to push it with full force. So that's why it's it's important for Republicans to realize that and not make stupid mistakes like not showing up in. 2022 or 2024 because they're still angry about 2020. Like, I mean, again, there's, like I said many times, there's no evidence of any fraud that swayed the election in 2020. There's, there's none. So, we need to put that aside and actually work and work hard to actually get back the Senate and the House and the presidency in both 2022 and then in the in 2024. It's going to be a lot of ground, but I think Republicans are in pretty good shape to do that. It's whether or not they're smart enough to do it in the first place. Because Republicans can be quite dumb. Quite dumb in how they approach uh, politics and elections, elections and all that. But of course, you know, the media immediately, you know, just... Put the framework around this saying that, oh, this was the best G7 summit in the world. The United States is back. This, this is we are better than ever and all that. And now we're back from the dark days of Trump and all that. So here is actually CNN's top three moments from the G7 summit. And here is what it says. When President Joe Biden hinted and his aides planning to visit the Cornish coast this weekend. Many, including the president, viewed it as something of a homecoming. Along a fixture uh, at international summits, Biden's return to the table represented more than just an elder statesman finally taking his place among the club of world leaders. For the White House, it also signaled the return of the United States to a type of consensus-based uh, diplomacy shunned by former President Donald Trump. Like any high school homecoming, Biden found some similar things. The stilted family photo, the quick diplomatic pull size, German, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. But he also found some things that have changed. Uh, staunch American allies shaken after the political upheaval of the Trump era, uh, era 
are increasingly working to define their own foreign policy separate from a country whose internal policies remain mirrored, mirrored to in, in dysfunction. Global earthquakes like Brexit and the coronavirus pandemic had not yet happened this that the last time Biden attended a diplomatic summit as an elected leader and were major topics topics of discussion in Cornwall. A, a dramatic uh, escalation of hypercrime, uh, cybercrime, and digital surveillance provided a menacing subtext, including on Saturday when organizers decided to cut off internet to the media room as leaders engage in sensitive talks on China. As Biden moves onward to Brussels for a NATO summit, here are, th here are three takeaways from the G7 summit. And here's takeaway number one, a weight lifted. The differences in body language between this weekend's summit in Cornwall and the three summits attended by Trump couldn't be starker. If the, 40th, if the 45th president was sometimes pictured looking uh, sullen as other leaders united against him, Biden seemed to take uh, pains to look relaxed and comfortable among the world leaders even when differences arose. He laughed heartily, sending along um, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who seemed relieved Biden had apparently moved past his description of the Prime Minister as a physical and a emotional clone of Trump. Biden leaned into an embrace of the French President em em Emmanuel um, Ma Macron? Ma Macron? Macron? Macron, sorry. With both men pressing into each other, each other, each other sides, as they walked arm arm into the summit venue, forcing other leaders to, to walk to walk around. As the meeting of the next day started, Biden was clutching a pair of his avatar sunglasses when he passed off to Macron a question on whether America was back. Yes, definitely, the French president said. He had a letter. It was great to have a pres U.S. president who is part of the club and very willing to cooperate. Yes, they're very willing. They're, he's very willing to co cooperate. By meaning cooperate, meaning to do, the United States get to do whatever the Europe, whatever Europe to to tells them to do. Whatever France tells them to do, whatever the U.K. tells them to do. Biden, Biden and Merkel met outdoors, taking advantage of the coastal sunshine for talks uh, punctuated by laughter. That evening, Biden joined, joined the leaders for some forced uh, bonding, this time in the form of a beach uh, barbecue that p featured ice cream sundaes for dessert. Biden's foreign policy pitch as a candidate centered around Senator Lodgepart on Trump's apparently unwillingness to cultivate positive relationships with world leaders. As a senator, then as vice president, Biden's style of diplomacy was uniquely focused on the give and take away between um, two human beings. In his um, in his first months in office, Biden tried conducting meetings with foreign leaders or foreign leaders of a video conference. Uh, excuse me. But he told aides it wasn't the same that he needed to start traveling as soon as it was safe. Over the course of three day over the course of the three day summit, Biden met individually with at least four leaders and sat for four four hours at 
of talks with the entire group. And here's takeaway number two. Deficits remain. Still, for all the Biden's attempts to put forward a show of committee, comedy, um, there were limits on what the leaders could agree to in the end. One of Biden's major proposals to the group, a global infrastructure program meant to compete with China's Belt and Road Initiative, was included in the summit's final statement, but it, it didn't include any specific commitments to countries on how much they're willing to contribute. A statement on ending the use of coal for electricity was vague and came without a timeline. And though language on China went further in calling out Beijing's uh, human rights and economic abuses than a previous G7 summit uh, statements, earlier drafts of the um, the cum Hold on one second, something happened here. Alright, sorry about that. So, uh, let me start over that paragraph. And through language on China, it went, uh, went further in calling out Beijing's human rights and economic abuses than previous G7 statements. Earlier drafts of the uh, communique uh, were sharper. Behind the scenes, European leaders appeared resistant to as far as Biden wanted to holding China to account. And, let's see, let's... Finally, um, here's the the third takeaway. Biden's trip this week has been carefully choreographed to highlight tra traditional American alliances before next Wednesday's summit talks with Russia President Vladimir Putin. Biden has spent has been spending much of his own downtime on his trip preparing for that meeting, which will occur inside an 18th century Swiss villa overlooking like a Geneva. Nearly as soon as he arrived, Biden teased a contentious atmosphere for his trips, concluding, um, including meeting. I'm heading to, G to the G7, then to NATO ministerial, and then to meet with Mr. Putin to let him know what I want him to know, Biden told troopers gathered at an airbase in Suffolk. Suffolk. How much support he got from fellow G7 leaders is exactly clear, in the final document, the leaders took Russia to task a malign for malign cyber activity, including ransomware attacks and for regional aggression. But even Markle, one of Biden's closest allies at the G7, found it difficult to swear off Russia forever. Biden recently waived sanctions at, on Germany related to the Russian Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would have made which which would have complicated relations with a reliable ally. Biden on Sunday agreed with Putin that U.S. and Russia ties were are at a low point, but he said it was worth meeting meeting him anyways. As a word, the two leaders won't hold a joint press conference, something past presidents have done. I think the best way. To deal with this is for he and I to meet and he and I to have our discussion. I know you you don't you, yeah sorry, I know you don't doubt that I will be very straightforward with him about our concerns, Biden said on Sunday, and I will 
I will make cl very clear my view of how the the meeting turned out, and he will make clear how, from his from his perspective, how it turned out. So it's all over this article from CNN. It's just pretty much just them, just gushing over over Biden, how just awesome he did at the G7 summit, and how he just he just a f breath of fresh air. And the Americans bag and make it a t being a team player now, and that Amer other world, um, the rest of the world likes us now, even though we sh why we should we care about what the other countries think of the United States? But in reality, it was not a good conference for him. I mean, he did absolutely awful, and really, it's just it's just crazy to me that. He clearly, clearly, this guy is deteriorating, but they keep put him out, put him out out there in a spotlight for this stuff. It's it's, pretty much, it's elder abuse, it's abuse of someone with dementia, and it's, it's quite sad to see it. Even see his wife go along with it, his family go along with it. It just it makes no sense with me to me. If I saw anybody in my family being treated like that, put out in the spotlight when they're clearly deteriorating, I'll pull them out in a second. And get them help to get them the help they need. I mean, hopefully he's getting some kind of help, but it seems to not be doing a whole heck of a lot. But I know, I mean, dementia, you, there's not a whole lot you can do in the first place. But it's just quite unfortunate that they keep doing this to him. It's very sad to me. Alrighty, so I'm going to move on to the uh, SBC stuff and what all happened there. But first, you gotta go over to YouTube where they got enough free balls to check it out. So, not only you get the rest of this episode with the SVC stuff, and also me talking about the controversial subject of the Senate's homosexuality, and also the good stuff of Bass of the Week. And remember, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. This is the God of Frame Show. Alrighty, so now let's move on to the SBC stuff. So the next thing I want to hit on is the uh, what's been going on with the SBC. So what exactly what exactly is the SBC? Well, it basically is called the Southern Baptist Convention, and obviously is for the Baptist denomination. And it's basically kind of like um, the DNC and RNC, the kind of those national conventions where kind of a group, kind of a hierarchy group of leaders from the denomination kind of get together and kind of, you know, talk about issues, you know, is, um, hitting the church and all that and making the resolutions for other church to other churches, small churches to uh, kind of use as a guideline and all that. So... Kind of sort of like that if you want to make a comparison. So there's been a lot of controversy surrounding the SBC for the past really the few years. Because 
that was been going on with it in terms of race and um, intersection intersectionality, and all really sprang from this one resolution they passed. Uh, it's called Resolution Nine, or in other words, it's called the Resolution on Critical Race Theory and Intersection Intersectionality, and this launched an entire big kind of debate in the SBC surrounding this this sort of thing of whether or not churches should should accept it or and all that. So here's actually what the uh what Resolution Nine says. And I am gonna go to the entire thing. Whereas concerns have been raised by some evangelicals over the use of frameworks such as critical race theory and it's an intersectionality. And whereas critical race theory is a set of analytical tool, tools that explain how race and has and it continues to function in society, inter intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and forms one, form one's experience. And whereas critical race theory and intersectionality have been appropriated by individuals with worldviews that are contrary to the Christian faith, resulting in ideologies and methods that contradict scripture. And whereas evangelical scholars who affirm the authority and the sufficiency of scripture have employed selective um, insights from critical history and intersectionality to understand multiple multifaceted um, social dynamics, and whereas the Baptist faith and message states, all scripture is totally and true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world. The true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by all which human, human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tied, should be tried. Article 1 and whereas general revelation accounts for um, fruitful insights found in human ideas that do not explicitly emerge from scripture and reflects what what some may term common grace. And whereas critical race theory and intersectionality alone are insufficient to diagnose and redress the root of causes of the social ills that they identify with result from sin, yet these analytical tools can aid in evaluating evaluating a variety of human experiences and whereas scripture contains categories and principles by which to deal with racism part of poverty sexism injustice and abuse that are not rooted in secular ideologies and whereas humanity is primarily identified in scripture as image bearers of god even as biblical authors address various audiences according to the characteristics are such as male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and, slave and free, and whereas the New Covenant further unites image bearers by creating new humanity that will one day inhabit the new creation, in that the people of this new humanity, through, though descended from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people, are all one to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it lists Ephesians 2 6, Revelation 21, uh, 21 through 4, and then 21 9, verses 9 through 14. 
And whereas Christian citizenship is not based on our differences, but instead on our common salvation in Christ Jesus, in Christ. The source is the source of our truest and ultimate identity. The Southern Baptist Convention is committed to racial reconciliation built upon biblical presuppositions and is committed to seeking biblical justice through biblical means. Now, therefore, be it be it resolved that the past the messengers of to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Birmingham, Alabama, June 11th uh, through 12th and 2019, affirm scripture added as the first, last, and sufficient authority. With regard how to how, with regard to how the church seeks to address social ills and reject and we reject any conduct, creeds, religious opinions, which contradict scripture and be further resolved that critical race theory and its intersectionality should only be employed as ecological tools, um, sub subordinate to scripture, not as transcendent ideological uh, frameworks. Be it further and be it further resolved. That the gospel of Jesus Christ alone grants the power to change people in society because he, he who started a good work in you will carry it, it on to completion until the day of Christ, Christ Jesus. That's of Philippians 1.6. And be it further resolved that Southern Baptists will carefully analyze how the information gleaned from the, these tools are employed to address social dynamics and be a further resolve that Southern Baptist churches and, and institutions uh, repudiate uh, the misuse of insights gained from critical race theory and its intersectionality and any unbiblical ideologies that can emerge from their use when uh, absolutized as a worldview. And be a further resolve that we deny any philosophy and theology that fundamentally defies defines individuals using categories and identified as sinful in scripture rather than the transcendent reality shared by every image bearer in divinely um, affirmed distinctions and be further resolved that while we we denounce the misuse of critical race theory and and intersectionality, we do not deny that ethnic, gender, and cultural distinctions exist are a gift from God from God that will give him absolute glory when all humanity gathers around his throne in worship because of the redemption accomplished by our resurrected Lord and and be finally resolved that the Southern Baptist churches seek to exhibit the eschatological promise in our churches and the present by focusing on unity in Christ amid image bearers and rightly celebrate and rightly celebrate our differences as determined by God in the new creation. Alright, so that's uh, Resolution 9, or also known as the Resolution on Critical Race Theory and Intersectionality. So going through this, is very obvious where <laughs> the controversy really took off. Mainly because, as we see in the result part, in that... Basically, these guys have made excuses to still use critical race theory as kind of tools used alongside scripture. You know, as you know, let's go back a little bit. This is the second uh, resolved line, and it says, you know, be further resolved 
that critical race theory and, and intersectionality should only be employed as analytical tools subordinate to scripture, not as transcendent, transcendent ideological frameworks and be a and frameworks. So a few problems with this too. So obviously <laughs> the biggest problem with this whole thing is that critical race theory and intersectionality are all anti completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have no, no business being used in the church, even as analytical tools or whatever. None. Because it's, it's based in Marxist, you know, theory. And first of all, Marx, Marxism is, is a very anti-biblical idea. So the fact that people are still are trying to use in the church, trying to use, we're just using it as you know analytical tools. No, you should not be using it at all. There's no need for it. If you're talking about you know terms of solving issues of race or whatever, even though again, really what this is talking about is kind of the whole issue around supposed systematic racism, and we know. That systematic racism does not exist in the United States anymore. It used to back in the 60s, part of the 70s when it's still, you know, moving out and also back to slavery. But in 2021, here in the United States, no, it does not, no longer exist. So when it comes to issues of race, there's no need to use these worldly philosophies at all. Because the gospel is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient to solve these issues. Because the Bible makes very clear that, for one, yes, you know, each skin color is a beautiful, is, or can be, is a characteristic from God. And everyone is made in image of God. But, it's real, all it is is just a characteristic of what you look like. It has nothing to do with your heart, who you are as a person. Is really, it's not that important. Races, your color of skin is not that important. As we saw, obviously, know those who are in Christ, there is no longer, you know, Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, no male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So, the gospel is very clear about this. It's very sufficient in this area. So, I don't understand what the debate is. But ever since, you know, ever since this was, you know, passed, or this resolution was passed and everything, this launched the entire debate, not only in the SBC, but also in the church more broadly. Now, I, want, I do want to make a disclaimer right here. I didn't, I didn't make it at the beginning. I should have. But I'm not part of the SBC. I'm not a Southern Baptist. I'm not a Baptist at all, actually. I'm more of a <laughs> Reformed non-denominational non uh, evangelical, if you will. So I don't really care for denominations. But the Southern Baptist Convention, as we see, is very important to the church for obvious reasons because it is <clears throat> their doctrines, their doctrines to believe in, what they teach or what most teach in SBC is very biblical. But unfortunately, over the past few years, worldly philosophy and, and all that has now creeped into the SBC, into the church more broadly, and has really shifted a lot of things, it caused a lot of 
to base and battles, which led to the which is leading to the big battle of uh, Critical Race Theory. <clears throat> Excuse me. And really, it really took off <laughs> last year with the death of George Floyd and all the summer riots and all that. That's when and a whole racial reckoning that happened all throughout society and culture. And that's when really the uh, critical race theory battle and the church and society really took off. And as we see, even in just the secular, secular society, um, critical race theory is getting into everything, into schools, into TV, into institutions, into, into just to everything. And now it started creeping into the church. And it's this really, this resolution is what really kind of caused that. I mean, it's not, it's not the sole factor of it, but this is one of the, one of the factors that's led to this battle. So obviously there's been many people in the church and the SBC who have been fighting to the nail to stop this nonsense. Um, obviously you got guys like, uh, Tom Buck, um, and all of them, from Tom Askell, all from, you know, the Founders Ministry, you got the Just Thinking Podcast guys, you know, Virgil Walker, Daryl Harrison, and then you got John MacArthur kind of, uh, fighting against it too, and, you know, Vody Bauckham is a big one, and many others, many solidly biblical folks, you know, coming against this nonsense. But unfortunately, on the other side, you got folks, you know, push, put folks openly pushing this thing, or just making an excuse like, you know, why am I making a big deal out of this? It's, it's nothing. It's just an analytical tool. But again, this analytical tool, per se, is based on Marxist um, <laughs> beliefs. And critical race theory is, in itself, a racist belief. It is a racist uh, philosophy and all that. So you, you really want to use that as an analytical tool in the church? That does not make sense to me. So I'm fully behind the guys, you know, Dar you know, all of them, John MacArthur and all, uh, you know, Bauckham, just like guys, Tom Buck, Founders Ministry folks, trying to get this, um, all this crap out. Because it's a complete nonsense. It has, no it has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has no business being in the church whatsoever. And it's led into to the recent election that happened in the SBC um, last weekend when the, you know, the election took place, um, basically the election of who was going to be the new SBC president. And it's been, this has been an ongoing battle because it's really between a few candidates. You know, we got really a few, and really one solidly biblical guy against ones who were not really biblical in their teaching and are making, making excuses and even supporting critical race theory and intersectionality and all that. And also, so the two big guys really behind, uh, were the two big competitors in this election was, uh, Mike Stone and, and, um, Ed Litton. So, Mike Stone is actually a very solidly biblical guy. I mean, he's fully against critical race theory. He's just, he's just some very solid teachings and solid beliefs and all that. So, he is also a very perfect fit, fit 
for the SVC for the you know to lead SVC. Then you got you know guys like Ed Litton, who has some problems with the theology overall. I mean, he actually had his wife like teach with him, um, d- um, during a sermon, which of course we know that scripture is very clear that you know a woman is not supposed to lead a sermon, not supposed to lead a church at all. That's just the difference between one coming up, you know, telling the story. That's perfectly fine. So one coming up t- telling the story to folks and all, they're giving their testimony. You know, that's perfectly fine. But a woman coming up and you know, saying, you know, teaching an actual sermon, that's not biblical whatsoever. And it's very clear in scripture. So there's also some very theological pro- problems involving this guy. And he's very soft on critical race theory. Like he's saying, like he always says, why are we making such a big deal out of this? You know, we should just ignore it and focus on the gospel and all that. Which, yes, we do need to focus on the gospel, but far, part of focusing, focusing on the gospel is to make sure nothing else comes in and to, tries to mess with that. To keep out uh, worldly, even satanic uh, uh, philosophies. And critical race theory is one of them. So I was the obvious pick who would have been Mike Stone. But being the culture we live in, of course, now, and given the position of Mike Stone, he was completely trashed by the media, by the, by more progressive Christians and all that. It even coming down to false accusations. So these false accusations that came up against Mike Stone was that Apparently there were some a lot of sexual abuses in the SBC, which have been proven that those have happened definitely not by Mike Stone, but by other pastors in the in the SBC church churches, which is very sad, and those folks need to be dealt with, and you know prosecuted instead of prison, obviously. But the accusations against uh, Mike Stone come in as basically. He was hiding them, hiding these sexual abuses, and to try to try to cover for these pastors. But the problem is, there's been no absolutely no evidence for this, none. And he's come out saying, "Look, <laughs> I have never covered up for these folks. I never will. And I'm um, seriously, I I'll cooperate anywhere I can, but I'm innocent of these charges." And he, from the looks of it, he was. But unfortunately, the damage is already done because his name, his reputation was completely just trashed on. It it was utterly disgusting. It reminded, reminded me a lot of uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, oh, just all the crap he went through. And thankfully, the Republicans had the galls to, to still vote him in at Supreme Court. But unfortunately, folks in the SBC did not have the courage to do so this time around. It's very unfortunate, even though Mike Stone was the clear pick for this. I mean, it was a hard fight, but fortunately, Ed Litton did win the presidency and the SBC. So, that's going to be a lot of problems. Now, I don't think this is going to be the end of the SBC at all. I think it's still going to threaten still a lot of, a lot of solidly biblical folks out there who you know, want to, are still going to preach the gospel as, as it is, and will still fight 
against any worldly um, ideology that try to cre- tries to creep into the church. And I'll be <laughs> right there behind him. But this is a problem when you let worldly philosophy ideologies into the church. You get these sort of problems. So things like critical race theory, um, intersectionality, the social gospel, um, you know, those things, the uh, even kind of more smaller case, the QAnon type deal, uh, those are even, those are very small numbers <laughs> right there. It's as not as prevalent in the church as people would like to make it out to be. But it's definitely, that's kind of infiltrated into some small parts of some churches all throughout the United States. But overall, again, it is a problem. All of them are a problem because there are worldly, worldly philosophies and the um, ideologies creeping into the church and really messing with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which which is not a good thing whatsoever, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. It is completely sufficient. It is it is the final authority we should rely on. And we do not need any of these little things to help us out in society. Because, really, the goal of church was not, the goal of Christ was not to come to save society and to win the culture. The goal of Christ was to come to save sinners. And that was his goal. And that will always be his goal. And yes, it can, the gospel can be used rightly um, to change, you know, to save sinners. And as a result, the culture might change. <laughs> but if, if your main goal is to just change a culture, not reach out to sinners and show them the gospel, then you're going about it the wrong way. Because <laughs> the, the right way is go reach out to sinners, say, look, your sin has penalties, and but here's a way the sins can be forgiven. It's as simple as that. Which leads us into our final topic of this episode. So the final topic I want to talk about in this episode is a very controversial one. And it is the topic of the sin of homosexuality. So again, this is a very controversial, very hot topic in, in today's world, in today's society even in the church, unfortunately, which makes no sense. I'll get to that in just a little bit. But first off, before we really dive into it, let's go to... Open, I'm going to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Alright, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting from verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor junkers, nor ravelers, nor swindlers will enter the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So again, like I keep saying, the topic of the sin of homosexuality is a very 
very controversial one, to say the least. Because it's a very hot-button issue, as we know, of course, uh, right now, it is the month of June, which is also known as, quote-unquote, Pride Month, which is the month to celebrate the LGBTQPQRS, whatever, <laughs> the... Um, that agenda, those, you know, people who celebrate those lifestyles, and all that. And you, know, you, might, you might be wondering, the question that always comes up when someone really talks about this issue, mainly when the Christians, pastors, talk about this, the main question always comes up saying, why are you focused on, on this? You know, there's other sins, too. Why are you focusing on this sin? And let me just um, make this um, point right, straight on. Stay right here. I'm not gonna. I'm not talking about this to make a make it a point where homosexuality is somehow a more a special kind of sin, a more graver sin than others, or whatever. I'm not making that argument whatsoever in this um section. I'm not because in the eyes of God, each sin is equal in the sense that we all deserve death. But the reason why I want to really talk about this topic is because of the way society has really kind of um, focused on this particular sin, and even the church. So again, like like we've seen, that there's been a cultural wide acceptance of this, of this you know sin right here, and even you see it all all over. The media, television, and just at stores, or just all over the place. It's insane. <laughs> um, just, it's, it's everywhere. And, of course, I'm not surprised by this. No one should be surprised when the culture full of unregenerate sinners are celebrating this stuff because, you know, they do not know the gospel, or they don't. They're not seeking after God. They reject God. They don't want. They don't want to seek Him, and they just want to live in the sin because in their sin because they don't see um, anything wrong with it in their eyes. So I, I fully expect them to act that way. But the main problem is when it's getting into the church, and what I mean by this is that there's been this weird phenomenon in the church where this whole thing about acceptance and tolerance and just love, 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 love has now made excuses for these type of sins and even completely um, just declassifying them as a sin overall. So before I move on, get on to that, I want to well, the first thing we got to ask them is, in fact, homosexuality is a sin. Is that a sin, or am I just making stuff up? Well, let's first go to Genesis chapter 19. So, Genesis chapter 19, um, we're going to start from the beginning of it, verse 1. This is about talking about the destruction of, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. Gomorrah and Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, gotta, I want you to pay attention to 
kind of part of this, and one of the reasons why it's completely destroyed. So here's what, um, starting from verse 1, here's what it says. Now the two angels came to Sodom in, in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and your and go on your way. They said, however, No, we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly so that they turn us they turned aside to him and entered um his house. As, and he prepared a feast for them and baked on leaving bread, and they ate. <clears throat> Sorry. Before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both the young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said, said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us. Is that sorry? Bring that to us so that we may have relations with him. And also, when some about relations, is really referring to sexual relations, right here. And then, Balat went out to them and at the doorway and shut the door behind him, and said, "Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men." Please let let me bring them out to you. Do not do to do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men, inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, "Stand aside." Furthermore, they said, "This is this one came in as an alien. He's and he already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them." So they pressed hard against Lot. And came near to break the door, but the men reached out their hands and um, brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they weary themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, "Whom else have you have you here?" A son-in-law, your son, or your sons, and your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his um, son-in-law, sons-in-law, and were about who were about to marry his daughters, and said, "Up and get out of this place." For the Lord will destroy the city, but he appeared to his son-in-laws and to be jesting. <clears throat> when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who were here, or you will be sent away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated, so the man seized his hand in, um, in the hand of his wife, in the hands of the two daughters, for the, Lord of the, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and and put him outside the city. All right, so I'm gonna stop there. Um, <clears throat> in that part right there. 
So what, the reasons why, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed was because, you know, God heard, saw the outcry of just sin and wickedness that's happening in those cities, including, and a big part of it was homosexuality, as we saw in a verse, was it five, sorry, verse five through six, where, you know, a lot just brought into, sorry, verse four through six. Um, you know, Lot brought the angels into his house, but the men of the city <laughs> went and were gonna were trying to have sexual relations with him, with with them. So obviously, that was a big <laughs> issue in the um, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is why God destroyed it. And Scripture is clear, very very clear, that that sort of act, homosexuality, is abomination, an abomination to the Lord. So now let's go to Leviticus 18.22. So Leviticus 18, uh, verse 22, it says this. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. And next one, let's go to Leviticus 20.13. We'll just write the next page over. So, verse, uh, yeah, 20, Leviticus 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of, both of them have committed a detect detestable act they should they shall surely be put to death their blood guiltiness is upon them so obviously Leviticus is very clear right here and God is very clear that that act homosexuality is a sin is an abomination to to God so now let's go to to New Testament because a lot of the argument is made for homosexuality in the church is that well, the New Testament, you know, says it, but the New Testament doesn't. You know, New Testament is the New Testament. It's a, it, the law doesn't apply. But, again, Jesus did not come to destroy the law. He came to, to fulfill it. So things that were abomination to God, like moral things, like like social relationships and all that, you know, the stuff that were, that kind of stuff, not so much as, you know, the eating shellfish or trimming beer or whatever, that is no longer applies. But things like homosexuality, adultery, stealing and taking amnesty and all that, that still that still, you know, applies to today. Now we're not are held to that as to extent of our salvation, but as an act of obedience to God, as I hit on last week. But again, as even, but the um, sin of homosexuality is still mentioned in the New Testament too. So let's go to, as I read in First uh, Corinthians earlier. So now let's go to First Timothy. So First Timothy, uh, verse one, starting from verse nine. And it says this, 
realizing the fact that the law is not made for for a righteous person, but for who, but for those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and per uh, perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So, this is Paul talking here, and it's, it's very obvious that even then, things like homosexuality, among other sins, were still an abomination to God. So now let's go to Romans uh, chapter 1, starting from verse 18. Alright, so Romans 1, starting from verse 18, it says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident with them, for God made, made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what is what has been been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incredible God for an image in the form of credible, credible men and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the um, creature rather than the creator. For um, for who is who is blessed forever, Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned their desire to each, to toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving their own persons, the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to, to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, and... Sorry, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, admitters of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrusting, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know or the orders of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So, Paul cannot be any more clear in Romans right here 
nor in Timothy, nor in Leviticus, nor in Genesis, that the act of, that the sin, that the act of homosexuality, that that is a sin, is an abomination to God, it is very clear. So, so it is very. It doesn't make sense to me why some of the church had completely kind of brushed that to the side. Saying, oh, well, no, and his, we don't want to touch that because it's too controversial. So we're going to just be all talk about all acceptance and love, 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 love. Which, of course, love is a big part of God. It is obviously a big part of God, but it's not the only part of God. It's also the wrath of God, the justice of God, and all that. So there's a lot more goes to it. So a lot of. One big argument that comes against when people point out or that scripture is clear about this is that one flaw, very flawed argument that comes out saying, well, the word homosexuality wasn't used, didn't exist back then, so Paul obviously wasn't talking about that. But he obviously was. And even so, Leviticus and, and Genesis and even the Romans... Also, I mean, Romans is very clear. Take out Timothy and First Corinthians when talking about Romans, Leviticus, and, and Genesis. It's very clear what's being talked about in those passages. Very clear. So, um, that that argument is very flawed, very flawed. And even some come out and saying, well, what he's really talking about is like just, um, is incest or pedophilia and all of that, which. Is now what he's talking about. That is still a very sinful act, pedophilia and incest. That actually, it is mentioned separately, I believe, in Leviticus, apart from homosexuality. But as many different excuses that people try to make in order to not really paint this as a sin, to paint this sin as a, as a sin. So the question that comes to mind is: It isn't really is it really loving to accept the sin in order to be more tolerant, to be more loving? Because you know, as with anybody, when you tell them their act, um, what they're doing is um, is actually in violation to God, they immediately get offended and just you know hurt by it. But that's with all, that's with all sins, actually, <laughs> really. As many times where I personally been convicted, not really offended, I don't like the term offended, but really convicted is a better term for it on this. I mean, the gospel is, is really should convict you on a lot of things. It should. But a lot of people don't like that, so and so they're very kind of brush that aside and knock down over it. So when people see that, they say, well, okay, we won't touch that anymore will kind of change the message of the gospel to make it more, you know, appealing, more accepting, and all that, completely thrown away the really heart and the really meaning behind the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really, when it comes down to it, it's really, it's not loving to accept the sin in order to be tolerant. It is. It's really not. But before I get to that, I want to um, really come out really right here and say, just like every other sin, like, um, what are the adultery, drunkenness, 
fornication, anything, no matter what, porn addiction, or just really any sin, homosexuality included, can't is forgivable by God. It is for, forgivable. Forgivable. So let's first go to uh, John chapter 3. Alright, so John chapter 3, and this is, of course, when uh, Jesus is talking, about, talking to uh, the uh, Pharisee Nicodemus, where Nicodemus was very curious and, like, very, you know, earnest about, you know, like, who Jesus was, because he probably saw a lot, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about, I mean, in The Chosen, he sees some miracles, and I wouldn't be surprised if the real Nicodemus really saw some miracles that Jesus did. Or at least heard of them and was very curious about you know who this man was. So also Nicodemus went to talk to Jesus that night. So and that's where this chapter comes in. So I'm going to start with uh, verse 16. So a very popular verse. For God so loved the world. Oh, sorry, let's actually start with verse 14. As Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even so, so must even so must. Let me start over. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes it will in in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe, he who does not believe, has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So obviously, Jesus. This is Jesus talking. That obviously, whoever believes in him will not perish for the sin, but the sins will be forgiven, and they will spend eternal life with God. And Jesus is very clear about this. So now, so let's go to uh, Romans 5. So Romans 5, um, at verse 8, it says this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And finally, let's actually go back to uh, 1 Corinthians, you know, the, the passages I've read at the beginning of this topic. So we got, again, verse uh, chapter 6. And let's go to, actually go to the entire thing again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
Neither neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor the covetous, nor junkers, nor ravelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the very important part right here. So worse such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. So, it's very clear that the sin, even homosexuality, can, is, is for, forgivable by God. It will be forgiven if you repent of it, of course, and turn away from it. As it says, you know, at the very beginning of the part of uh, verse 11 right here, such were some of you. So it's obviously when, you know, Paul's writing this letter to uh, Corinth, or it's obviously some Christians he's talking to that were, that practiced, you know, homosexuality and many other sins, who were, wa- who repented of those sin- who repented of those sins and washed them with the blood of Jesus Christ. And were made a new person. So, this is, you know, very good news for not only homosexuals, but also for everybody. For everybody, if you know, if you put your trust, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, you will have eternal life. Your sins will be forgiven. And so, so back what I was saying earlier regarding whether it's loving to kind of to accept the sin and kind of disclassify it as a sin in order to be more tolerant, be more accepting, if you will. Well, here is actually a harsh truth that people need to know right here. Um, really, it's actually an, it's an act of hatred. Whether you know it or not, it's actually an act of hatred when you declassify homosexuality as a sin. Because what you're doing is actually you're cutting them off from you're cutting homosexuals off from the redemption of Jesus Christ, because when you say, "Oh, your sin is you, you is that what you're doing is not a sin," so you can live like that all you want, and you you can come to church, you know, say you love Jesus and all that, but you can still practice the sin. It's okay, <laughs> but of course, again, that sin is still an abomination to God, and is if left unrepented and left with an unchanged heart, it will be dealt with. So, that right there is actually an act of hatred, because you're doing them, dooming them into hell, into eternity of punishment. Now, it's not to to say when uh, the God can't use someone, can't reach those folks, regardless of whether or not they heard false false teaching like that, God can very well still reach them. And he does. But it is very hateful and really sinful when you do this. Because even in, uh, let's go, I should go back to Romans 1 real quick. Notice, I, I put down my notice something, the ver, last verse right there. So it's verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So, you know, hearty approval to, you know, those who practice them. 
And that's exactly what some folks in the church are doing. They give hearty approval to this lifestyle. And what that what they're doing in itself is sinful. And you're just you're just leading these you know, leading homosexuals, these people, image bearers of God, into the pit of hell. That's what you're doing. Now again, God is sovereign overall, and he can still reach his folks. He can still draw those folks to him. And he does. There's many folks who are who, who practice homosexuality for years, but they were still drawn by God, and they were washed away from that sin. But it's still an act of just hatred to do this, to just classify in the church homosexuality as a sin. It's, it's complete. It's it's complete nonsense. But it is, although it's very unpopular to say this, it actually is an act of love. When you say to them what you're doing is a sin, and here's that, and you point to them the penalties of that sin, and, sh- and point them to Christ, Jesus Christ, because even though they may feel uncomfortable, may feel convicted or offended. By what we're saying, but that the feeling when you say to them, "Look, when you when you may be enjoying this now, even though there are a lot of people let who are joint who do that who are miserable, but some quote unquote enjoy it." So you said to them, "You may be enjoying this now, but when you die, when you die here on Earth and go stand before God, you will be held accountable for that." And a punishment, which is a sin, is death. So it's very important to point out that to folks, and also point them to Christ, and tell them, look, but it's also God made a way, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, and repent of that sin, and turn away from it, you will be forgiven, you will spend eternal life with God. Now, it's not very easy to really, it's not, you can't just like flip a switch, and boom, you're just a new you won't have to deal with that problem anymore. Temptations will still rise. Everybody deals with the temptations of past sins. I deal with it. Many others deal with it. But it's it's still. But still, when you're in Christ, when your sins or the past has been washed away, you repent of the sins and turn to Him. Then you're solid. You are. Eternally secure in God. As it says in Romans uh, 8. Let's go back to Romans. Romans 8. Oops, went too far. Romans 8 uh, at verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, once you you know, once you, you repent of sin, turn to Christ, you're eternally secure in Him, and you will spend eternal life with with Him. So, why in the world would you not share that, even with homosexuals, in the fear that you might offend them, or kind of push people people away? From it, because look at the truth. 
is the truth. The truth will offend people, will convict people. But we can't, we can't, you know, be wish-washing with the truth. We can't deny that truth. We, we simply can't. We need to speak it boldly and proudly with, for the glory of God. So again, it is an act of love to share that with homosexuals, even though the world says otherwise. So again, if you're a homosexual, and let me just say this to you, there is hope. You can, it might be convicting when you say this, but look, the sin you're dealing with right now is, the penalty of it is is death, and you will spend eternity hell um, in punishment for it. But if you put your trust in Jesus and repent of that sin and turn to him, turn away from that sin, there's hope. You, your sins will be forgiven and you will spend eternal life in heaven with him. That is the good news of the gospel. For we are all sinners. All of us were dead in our sins. All of us. But God made a way through Jesus Christ so that he that he you know, died to sin of death, and then rise rise from the grave three days, three days later, so that we can have our sins forgiven, and that we can be resurrected spiritually from the dead, and that we can become a new person as regeneration, as justification, and so on. So that's the good news of the gospel, and to cut that off, cut that off, cut that good news off from homosexuals. Is a pure act of hatred. Anyone who does, anyone in the church, any pastors who do that, need to repent of that sin and change change that because it's, it's, it's just completely disgusting. All right, so now we got that out of the way. So now let's move on to the book of Acts. So we're going to be in Acts chapter nine. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're in Acts chapter 9, and we're starting from verse 20. So if you recall last week, um, Saul, uh, also known as Paul, Apostle Paul, um, you know, he was a Pharisee who persecuted the church, the early church, and, um, wanted to kill off any Christians. So on the road to Damascus, on the on the way to persecute against Christians, he was ambushed by Jesus Christ. And that completely changed him. And that's what led to his conversion to um into Christianity, <laughs> to turn to Christ, to put his trust in him, to repent of his sins and all that. And which led him to become the great apostle Paul. It's it's quite an incredible conversion story. Because it's really wild because you just, he just walking all of a sudden, boom, Jesus, Jesus right there. It's quite crazy. And it was crazy. Even the people who were traveling with him didn't see what he was seeing. They heard the voice of Jesus Christ, but they didn't see him. It's quite crazy. So the next section I want to hit on is actually uh, where Paul, Saul, um, Actually, he starts to share 
preach the preach about Christ, preach the gospel. So here's where it starts. It's starting from verse uh, 20, or the really last half of verse 19. Depending on what, what translation you're reading, sometimes they're split up a little differently, which is kind of weird. But I'm reading from the NASB, by the way. So if you want to follow along a little better. But anyways, uh, now for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Uh, excuse me. And immediately he began to proclaim the Je Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not, the, is, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had um, come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing the strength, his, and but Saul kept in increasing in strength, and confounding the Jews to have led at the D Damascus, providing that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is kind of crazy, right here. I want to stop real quick. Is that you know, those people around him, you know, they were, you know, so, you know, rightly amazed by this, you know, because here's Saul who persecuted the church, and he had made no secret secret of it. Then all of a sudden, he's coming out saying he's preaching the gospel, preaching Christ. So that were there, you would th think that would kind of for unbelief for the Pharisees overall. You would think that would click a light bulb in their head and say, "Wait a minute, you got this guy suddenly he changed himself. Maybe there's something to it." But obviously, God hardened their hearts, and maybe they weren't <laughs> predestined and all that. But whatever. But anyways, um, so we're in verse 23. When, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But the plot became known to Saul, so they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and ascribed to um, to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and now and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of, in the name, of of the Lord, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were tempted to put him to death. But when the brethren learned, learned of it, he they brought him down to, uh, Caesarea, and sent him away to Tarsus. Tarsus. So the church throughout uh, all Ju Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase, which is you know the very good news right there. It is really when the church really started blowing up all throughout the region, and eventually all eventually thanks to Paul, right here it will be spread all throughout the world. Which is quite crazy how fast actually built. This tells you how God works. 
But it's quite cool that just immediately after Paul is converted, he's like, I gotta tell you about this. It's kind of similar to the woman on the well, where, you know, Jesus talked to her, and she telling, she, or he told her everything, everything she ever did, and she immediately went out into, and went out to the town she was at, um, and started talking about, hey, the Messiah is here. He told me everything I ever did. So, it's pretty cool. And so next week, we'll be starting and getting into more of Peter's, some Peter's ministry, and how that's building up. Alrighty, so now, let's move on to the good stuff of the week. Oops, sorry about that. So the good stuff of the week, um... So I've talked about this show uh, a few times on this uh, on this show, but I'm um, the chosen. Again, if y'all not seen the show, please please give it a watch. It is an amazing show. It is God is working through the show. It's very obvious. Again, for those who don't know, the chosen is about um, the life of Jesus Christ, about the gospel, but it's done in a very unique way that's never been done before. And really, kind of the main focus is really more from the perspective of those who followed him. So the first episode actually starts from the perspective of some of his followers, from Simon Peter to uh, Mary Magdalene to uh, Matthew, Andrew, um, even uh, James, James and John showed up, and even Nicodemus. It shows the perspective of Nicodemus, which really, this show kind of really changed my perspective of Nicodemus, because I was always very, always very intrigued by him, just kind of how he was throughout John, because only it appears three times in, only in Gospel of John, but he's always on the defense for Jesus, not against him, but for Jesus, and even helped bury him when he um, Jesus died. So, with the way the the show betrayed Nicodemus. That's like he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He believed in him. He believed he was the Messiah. But didn't quite, at least at this point, didn't quite make, just step into that and to follow him. Now, we don't know anything about him. So, for all we know, he actually did become a believer, a full on believer. And especially after the church. After his resurrection, after his ascension, he might have been a big help building the church. And he probably, because it's according, according to some kind of text, some church traditions, that I don't know very accurate or not, but he was actually excommunicated from the synagogue for his belief in Jesus. So, it's very interesting. So, and the show kind of really highlighted that. Kind of like his, his perspective, what he was thinking. So it's a very, very unique way, and even to Jesus. Like they actually show him, they show his personality for who he actually was. And it's so cool, actually, if you watch the show and actually, you know, go back to scripture, too. And you you can see his person, you can see the personality in scripture, even though sometimes you're not looking for it, but now it's obvious. Even some things were like, seriously, he told Peter... <laughs> to go fish, go fishing, pull out a fish, reach into his mouth, and pull out a coin. Um, that's... <laughs> just imagine the conversation right there. 
So it's it's a very well done show, and it's actually it's on season two right now, and it's more than halfway through season two. It's eight episodes in season one. It's going to be eight in season two as well. So we just now we're waiting on episode six to come out. But here's actually a little bit a little trailer for season two right here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What a friend we have in Jesus. Oh, our sins and griefs to bear. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, needless pain we bear. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Rejoice. For your reward will be great in heaven. Alright, so season two so far is actually is very, very good. Very good. And what's so weird is that I wanted to comment on this real quick. Like episode five got a lot of controversy for some reason. A lot of nitpickiness to it. A lot of petty petty stuff about it or whatever. Which it makes no sense. Like it's good to be there's there's a difference between being discerning and just being petty about little things. Christians should be Discerning with anything that's apart from scripture, whether it's books, TV shows, or whatever, just as no is no exception. But so far, there's been no contradictory to scripture at all. It never takes some liberties and puts them to puts in some puts in some context and backstories that are not in scripture, but it doesn't add to or take away from from scripture. But there's been a lot of petty little things like. From Mary Magdalene, kind of her exploring her trauma, because you know she was possessed by demons and had a lot of trauma in her life. So people were kind of petty about that because that was kind of brought up in episode five, even about Jesus practicing his sermon, or the Sermon on the Mounds, that is, kind of figuring out talking to the Father about you know what to say and everything. So. It's very, it's petty nonsense, but if, if just to ignore all that, it's still a great show. And I can't wait for episode 6. Episode 6 should be out next, um, this coming out Wednesday. So I can't wait for that. Alrighty, so then it's all for half of this episode. So I'll be back here next week with all the latest. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is the God of Freedom Show. If you enjoyed this episode of The God of Freeman Show, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Remember, you can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Thank you for listening or watching. Hey guys, so I want to real quick and talk, stop and talk about something that's coming up here in the fall, and that is the G3 Conference. So the G3 Conference is happening here in Atlanta, Georgia, at the World Congress Center. It is a great time to gather... With fellow believers in, in fellowship and worship, and to hear many great speakers, among whom include 
Pastor John MacArthur, Paul White, like Josh Bruce, um, Vody Bakum, Virgil Walker, uh, Daryl Harrison, and many more. It is, I, I can't wait, I just made my first time going, and I can't wait to see what it's about. So to register, you just simply tap in Google, GG3 Conference 2021, click on the website, go to Events, scroll down until you see the G3 Conference 2021, which is um, called Christ. Click on that, and click on Register Now, and then do fill out all your information there. Again, I'm this my first time going, I'll be there. And I, I'm very excited about that. And I hope like, many of y'all register, register and go as well. 